0: Well, let's jump right into this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I know we've read that often. We're going to continue to read it because here's the thing. What was Scripture given for? Scripture is our basis. I was having this discussion with a young man yesterday, actually. I uh, met up with him yesterday afternoon. Just understanding of, of what our foundation is. And ultimately, what our foundation isn't. And you know what it's not? It's not your feelings, not your emotions, not your circumstances. Those things move. You move. They move. Things change. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. What doesn't move is God's word because he is faithful to his promises. We've read this, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. We were kind of talking about this this morning in Bible study, but it's like getting an understanding where is where's your faith, hope, and trust? If it's not in God, then it's in a moving object. It is in something that may let you down. It may be in a person who may let you down. Have you ever been looked up to somebody? And they either had a moral failure or they did something. And you're like, I just can't believe they did that. We can't put our hope in people like that because they're human beings. They're going to screw up they're going to do things that you probably won't like. If you ever had kids? You know, you know, all right? Like, you're like, oh, I really want little Johnny to do something good with his life. And then what happens? He doesn't. You know, you raise your kids to be doctors and what do they do? Not be doctors. So we're looking at what God has done. What does it mean to hold fast to the confession of our hope? We don't waver. What does that mean? It means that we have put our hope in Him. So no matter what is going on, we know that God is moving over here. And He is the one that is faithful. We don't put our hope in the prophets. We put it into the message from the Word of God. We have to test the words of the prophets. If we don't, we will be led astray. Because not everything that is said on TV is true. I know that's shocking. If it's on the internet... Doesn't make it so. I don't care who says it. I don't care if they've been a reliable source in the past. It doesn't mean that they're right every time. We've got to go back to our roots, what we know. We are focused on the idea of does God heal today? We're going to begin to have people give testimonies of how God has moved in their lives supernaturally. Maybe it's to themselves. Maybe it's the times that they have ministered to people, whatever. Because I want you to hear from individuals where God has done things. Why do I want you to hear this? Because we don't look at this as objectively true. If I ask for a show of hands, how many of you people in here believe that God heals today? Most of us will raise our hands. And if I ask you why, most of us' response would be, well, because he healed so and so, or this happened, or whatever. That's the problem. We believe it because he says it, not because you've seen it. If it's based on what you've seen, then if it didn't happen, then it must be true that he doesn't heal, right? You can get into the semantics of why here and not here, but that is not the question being asked. The question being asked, is it God's will to heal? And that's what we began to dig into. In Psalm 103, verse 1, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. Who forgives your iniquities, heals your diseases, redeems your life from destruction, crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy, and he satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. That passage is true or it is not. We have to determine this. David writing this. So we began to look at Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And what we've been looking at is what do these words mean? So I showed you this passage in the Young Living Translation last week. It says, surely our sickness he hath borne, and our pains he hath carried them. We have, we, and we have esteemed him plagued, smitten of God, and afflicted. Why is it translated this way? What this man did when he took it is from the original Hebrew. What is it literally saying? And sometimes what it literally says does not translate well into English. So we kind of change the wording and stuff to make it make sense. If you've ever had a translator, you will understand this. So what are we focused on? Well, this passage is about the atoning work of Messiah. It doesn't tell us who he is. It tells us what's going to happen to him. It tells us some characteristics of him. This entire passage, which we're going to read. So last week we gave the idea, of, well, okay, fine. We talk about the atonement, is healing in the atonement. We have to know what atonement means. And so the word atonement, it denotes of making one reconciling of a person or an individu- uh, individual at a bened variance from God. In the Old Testament usage of it, it signifies a sin that was covered or expiated and the wrath of God being averted. So in other words, when something was atoned for, there was now a covering over it. It took something that was unclean and now made it clean. When they would make a sacrifice, they would put blood on those on these items or the individuals, thus atoning them and making it clean. I know it's weird. It doesn't sound right. But this is the system. Why? Because the life is in the blood. There has to be a cost to sin. And it wasn't simply sin as in what we think of sin. It was the fact that if they touched a dead thing, they're now unclean. So they had to go through all of these rituals, which brought us to the Day of Atonement. We talk about there being seven festivals that the Jews celebrate, one of which is a fall festival called the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is over here, it's right in the middle, it's right after the Feast of Trumpets. We're not getting into all of the details in this, however, I will tell you it's incredibly powerful once you see it uh, from a prophetic standpoint. But the Day of Atonement, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, whatever you want to call it, was the most holy day of the year. And they would go into the 10 days of awe, all, a time of fasting and sackcloth and ashes, and begin to reflect upon themselves. And we went into what the high priest did. Because underneath the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, we had to understand what the high priest's role was in that. The high priest had a role each and every day. He was involved in the different sacrifices, kind of overseeing all the priests. So you had the group of priests, which were from the tribe of Levi, the Levites, But then you had the high priest, which was the lineage of Aaron, and that matters. So there was basically one line and one line only of which you could become high priest. And when they made you the high priest, so to speak, like there would be a passing of the baton. So you had to meet the criteria, be of the family. A priest could be a Levite, but a Levite could not necessarily be a high priest. And so what would happen is during this time when he was getting ready to die, there was a lot of things that would take place, one of which is that the new high priest would come in. So as they were passing the baton, they would come in and a sacrifice would be made, oftentimes. They would take, the current high priest would then take the upcoming high priest and he would baptize him or mikvah him. Now how they did that in that time is not how you think of baptizing today where we lean them back and pull them forward. What they did, they would never touch them. They would go down in the water on their own and come back up. And what it was now, it was the passing of the baton and now taking on that role as the high priest, thus taking on all the responsibility associated with it. When the high priest died, there was places called cities of refuge. And what would happen is that if you had what we would call manslaughter, accidentally killed somebody, There was the avenger of blood that would be coming after you, but there were seven cities called the cities of refuge that you could go to and seek asylum. And as long as you were in that city, the avenger of blood, in other words, the family member or whomever was coming after to take your life, could not bring judgment upon you. You were protected. You would go in there, you would meet with the leaders of that city, and they would determine whether it was truly an accident or whether there was malintent associated there. But when the high priest died, now that conviction is gone, you are free to leave, and nothing can be done against you. So there was a releasing when the high priest died. We looked at the Day of Atonement, and all the craziness that had to go on in that time. I mean, it's intense. And we barely scratched the surface. Like the high priest would wear normal clothes, which had all of the stuff. I showed you a picture of it last week. But on the Day of Atonement, he would simply wear this white linen cloth, And he would go through the whole thing. And the first thing he'd have to do is make a sacrifice for himself and his family, atoning for himself. Then he would have to go and represent the nation of Israel, make a sacrifice for them. And then he would take that blood, and he would sprinkle it on the altar, sprinkle it all over the place, go into the Holy of Holies, the one time a year he could do it, and then put it on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. He was taking care of all of it, thus atoning for the nation for one more year. Talked about the two goats and Azazel, the one going out. I mean, there's this whole thing. You guys see how crazy it is. I mean, it is intense. This is no minor subject. And so when we look at this and we're asking, is healing in the atonement, guys, this is what it's referencing. I mean, it's insane. Can you imagine that? We take for granted how good we got it. We got it good. Really good. So now I want to begin to look at where does Jesus fit into all of this? So understanding the deductions about the Day of Atonement. First of all, the approach to God was extremely limited. The presence of God was in the Holy of Holies. One man got to go into that presence. One man. And guess what? If he didn't follow everything to a T, he died. It's a pretty severe consequence. Second part, there always had to be blood. The atonement without blood did not happen. The third part is that there had to be a mediator. In other words, he represented the nation of Israel. Under the law of Moses, it was the high priest. And so the high priest went in there by himself. It wasn't like we shuffled everybody through and you got your turn. You didn't take a number or anything like that. The fourth part about this is because he was a human mediator, he himself was a sinner. He had to first atone for himself. Then he could step in for the nation. The fifth part is that the two goats were necessary because the two goats illustrate that the sin is only atoned for or removed after the shedding of blood. The blood of the first goat was shed. The second goat had the sins upon them and was taken away from Israel, cast into outer darkness. The sixth part is that the atonement included the covering of both known and unknown sins. Perhaps you didn't know that you had broken God's commandments or something like that. It took care of all of those. And the last part, it was the confession of sin that always followed the shedding of blood because after the blood was shed, the high priest would step in there, confess the sins of Israel over Azazel, and send the scapegoat out into the wilderness. Isn't this fun? It's a lot. A lot. So now we've got to begin to look at what Messiah did and what he was coming to do. And for that, we go to the prophet Isaiah. And I'm going to read you what we call, they call it the unreadable part of Isaiah. In other words, they'll tell you that the Jews, the rabbis don't want the Jews reading this because when you read it, it sounds an awful lot like Jesus. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. It says, behold, my servant shall de- deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told, them they shall see, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. Now, when it says sprinkle, what does that mean? We're talking about the sprinkling of blood. This is what's going on. This is a reference back to what took place during these sacrifices. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed I report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form of comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So what did Isaiah just say about Messiah? He's ugly. He ain't good looking. Isn't that great for all of us? Speak for yourself, right? I know, I know what you're thinking, all right? You got that beard thing going. It's all right, we're good. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressor, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The number one takeaway here is the substitution. That's the number one takeaway because the nation had sinned, but this individual is going to come in and take the death upon himself, take the sin upon himself. So this is the concept of what we call the substitutionary atonement. The carrying or bearing iniquity that was on the goat that was sent off was now upon him. So the offering for sin in verse 10 and the bearing of sin in verse 11 are substitutionary in verse 12. We've got to get that because now we've got somebody stepping in on our behalf. But let's look at Isaiah chapter 49 real quick. Verse 5. It says, and now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him Whom man despises, to him whom nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship. Because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people, to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. This passage harkens back to some concept to the Day of Atonement. It's a messianic program that was laid out. It's first of all the commission that the Messiah would restore Israel. The second part here that often gets looked is that Messiah was a light to the Gentiles. Now this was a foreign concept. This is not something that they were expecting. Because Peter was shocked with Cornelius. He was shocked. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not even supposed to go into their house and yet here I am. So they weren't prepared for that. The third part here is that he's going to be rejected by the people of Israel. And because of that, the message will go out to the Gentiles. The fourth part is that he is going to be exalted in the end. And the fifth part is that he will become a covenant of the people and restore the nation. So we've got to understand this. He's rejected for whom? From all of us. But he's coming to restore The kingdom of Israel. This is where the confusion lies. Because they were thinking that when Messiah came, He would restore the kingdom. They were not expecting Him to die. Now, when you read these passages, it's very clear. And why is it very clear? Because it's already happened. We're looking back. But imagine coming up. They would read these passages and be like, well, who is this talking about? Well, this is talking about Messiah. Well, but he's going to restore his kingdom. We're we're no longer going to be under Roman rule. We're going to be a kingdom of, of ourselves with Messiah leading us. So therefore, all of this bad stuff about Messiah, about him being marred and dying and all of that, that can't be about Messiah. That must be about us as a nation. And that's why they didn't see it. Because they had accepted the suffering servant aspect as being pertaining to the nation itself because of everything that they had gone through. But when Messiah comes, he's going to restore everything back to how it was. We were once again going to be this nation of kings and priests, and we will rule with God. That was the idea coming. That is why they were constantly asking Jesus, are you setting up your kingdom? Is now the time? And what does he constantly say? Don't worry about the time. And they're like, okay, but when you do it, can I sit at your right hand? Can I sit at your left hand? If I'm there, I'm like, can I just be in the room? Like, I don't care where I sit. I just don't want to be outside. But they're politicking for position. This is all a picture of what was to come with Jesus. But there's this other part where things get weird. Because you understand what the high priest is in his role. Crucial. Crucial to the Day of Atonement. Imagine, the high priest gets it wrong. What happens? The people literally cannot worship God correctly. For an entire year, until that day comes around again. In Psalm 110, verse 4, it says this, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is where it gets bizarre. Because a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We don't know who Melchizedek is. We don't know what he's done, and we don't know why he matters. It's just something we say. But the book of Hebrews takes this idea about the high priest and paints a very clear picture if you understand the Old Testament. So I talk about this constantly. Remember, the Bible was not written to you. It's not somebody sat down and penned a letter to you. It was written by Jewish men to Jewish men. Thus, to understand the context of it as a whole, it helps to understand the Jewish belief system and customs that they were a part of. So this high priest idea is a very Jewish concept. The The context of the book of Hebrews is the entire book of Hebrews. You can't go and isolate one passage or another, or you will miss what is going on. And it is hearkening back to this system, this Mosaic covenant. So let's jump there. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. I'm going to skip around a little bit. I just want you to just try to stay up with me because this is very important. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then, that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now our focus on this when we read this in our church today is always what? Well, he sympathizes with your temptations. Therefore, you just come. But an incredibly bold statement was made here that often gets overlooked. We have a great high priest. That high priest is Jesus. Now, there's a problem with that. And if you're a student of Scripture, you'll catch it. What qualification did you have to have to be high priest? You had to come from the line of Aaron. And if you know Jesus' genealogy, he does not meet that qualification. So imagine being a Jew, knowing everything about the high priest, and you read this and you're like, sorry, writer of Hebrews, I say, Paul, you're confused. This would be new information. So we see that our high priest is in heaven. He's in a better position. He sympathizes with us. He was tempted just like we are, except he got it right. But because of whatever took place, now we go into the throne room. Where was the throne room that the high priest walked into? The Holy of Holies. We think of God in heaven, he's up in the throne. But where was the Shekinah glory seated on his throne? That was the mercy seat, guarded by two cherubim on each side. That is where he entered. So let's look at this. Let's get an idea of what's happening here. There's a prerequisite for priesthood. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest, okay? So how many of them? All of them. Very good. It's taken from among men. He's appointed for men in the things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So now it's laying out the prerequisite of who the high priest is, and what he does. First thing, he's taken from men. Okay? Fair enough. He's a man. Has to be, right? Nothing else. That's good. Now, in the things pertaining to God, he offers what? Gifts and sacrifices for what? Sins. Does he have compassion? Absolutely. Because just like they, he goes through everything else just as they do. So, so far do we see that these things are lining up with Jesus? Absolutely. Then it says, because of this, he is required as for the people to, and for himself to sacrifice for sins. So as I said before, he'd first have to sacrifice for his own sins, then he'd come and represent the nation. So he had to cleanse himself, then cleanse the nation. Could not get that in the other order. The last part is, no man takes the honor to himself. He is called by God, just like Aaron was. So how is the high priest chosen? Chosen by God. Now, how would they do that? A lot of times they would cast lots to figure out what the will of God was. But it wasn't just like abstractly said, okay, let's take a vote, or I like this guy, we're going to go with him. That's not how it was supposed to work. You notice I said supposed to work. Bear with me. So remember that coming forward, which is going to matter here in a little bit. So when we look at this, we want to see exactly what is taking place. So in verse 5, it says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, he being the father, said to the son, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also said in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now we just read that. So now we see it being used in the New Testament. Verse 7, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, here we have to see what's happening. First of all, Jesus is divinely appointed by God. We see that in Psalm 110. We see the confirmation of this. Secondly, Jesus was human, thus he qualifies. The third part is the compassion part, no question. But here's where it changes. He functioned not in the order of Aaron, but in the order of Melchizedek. And what do we know about Melchizedek? Nothing. We don't know anything. We need to know who he was. Why he matters. In fact, if Jesus is a picture of him, there must be chapters written in Scripture about Melchizedek. Well, guess what? There ain't. It's very vague. Thanks, God. So let's look at this the origin of Melchizedek. Here we go. Hebrews chapter seven, verse one, it says, for this Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem, he was a priest of the most high God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom also Abraham gave a 10th part of all, uh, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God remains a priest continually. So there's a number of things that are going on here. We're going to dig into this. This is in Genesis chapter chapter 14. We're going to catch the context of what's happening, but we see here, this Melchizedek, there's a lot said. He's the priest of the most high God. He was a king as well, which is very interesting because what do we know about the high priest? He couldn't be king. He didn't qualify. The king couldn't be high priest. Those offices did not marry one another. And yet here we have an example of it. So it's interesting. And we also see the main character in play here, which is whom? Abraham. Now, what do we know about Abraham. He was born before Moses. So understand this, the Mosaic covenant does not exist. The Aaronic priesthood does not exist. In fact, in the eyes of the world, Moses and Aaron aren't even a twinkle in their mother's eyes yet. So let's go to Genesis chapter 14, verse one. I'm gonna read a little bit here so you can catch what's going on. And it came to pass in the days of uh, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Asar, uh, Shedolom. listen guys, you know I can't say half these names king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Sh- uh, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemembar king of Zeboiim, if anybody else would like to come up and take a shot at these, you are more than welcome, uh, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, all these joined together in the valley of Siddam, that is the salt sea, 12 years they served uh, that guy, and in the 13th year, they rebelled. All right, so we see a war that's going on. In the 14th year of that same guy and the kings that were with him came and attacked Raphaim, the Astaroth car name, the Zuzim and Ham, and Emim and Shavim. Blah. Do any of these names sound familiar to anybody that's on uh, coming on Wednesday nights? You should be picking up on Raphaim, Zev, Zumim, all of them. I should practice these ahead of time. The problem is I say them the same way when I practice them. And the, verse 6, and the Horus in the mountain of Sierra and as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness, and then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, uh, that is Kadesh, and attacked the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. So there's war going on. It's been going on for a long time. If you're coming on Wednesday nights, you recognize some of these names because these are the names of the Nephilim tribes that were out there in Scripture so there's a lot that's taking place here that's often overlooked. Verse 8, And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Shedolomar, king of Elam, title king of nations, Amphraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, the king of Elassar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pit. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother, son who dwelt, uh, a brother's son who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So now we know why Abram's getting involved. So then, verse 13, one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the terebinth trees at Marmory and at the, the Amorite, a brother of Escol, the brother of Aner, And they were allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who was born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by not, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is near Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot, and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Shadolamar, and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram who said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Anar, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Guess what? This is all we know about Melchizedek. There is nothing else mentioned in Scripture except for Psalm 110. Nothing else is out there. So what do we know that's going on? A war takes place. Lot is taken captive. Abram finds out about it. He's going back to get his nephew. He brings him back, and as he's coming back, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, comes out, and he brings bread, and he brings wine. Now, what does that sound like a picture of, perhaps? Sounds like something that we see. Then we see that he is a priest of God Most High. Well, here's the problem. How many priests at this time were on the earth that worshiped Yahweh? So far we know of one. How did he become that? We don't know. We know how the other priests became one because they got there by birth. In order to be a priest in the temple, you had to be a Levite. If you weren't a Levite, there was no application process. You're not a Levite. You don't qualify. If you wanted to be high priest, there's one way to get there, and that is being of the lineage of Aaron. So if you were married into the wrong family, guess what? You don't qualify. Tough luck. Go find something else to do. But here, we see Abram's response, and we see Melchizedek's response to him. Blessed be Abram of God Most High. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, or Yahweh, Most High, who has delivered the enemies in your hand. And what was Abram's response? He paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Here's the problem. When was tithing instituted? Most will tell you with the Mosaic Covenant. Since the Mosaic Covenant is gone, thus this must be gone. Nobody told Abraham. Somebody should have let him know he could have kept that 10% for himself. And then it goes into this other stuff, And, and he wanted nothing to do with the goods. Why? Because he didn't want anybody to say, but God has made him wealthy. That was it. You don't get credit for this. Now, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7, because we're going to begin to look at the similarities that's going on. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met with Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To him also, Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, some people believe that Melchizedek was simply a, uh, what they call a Christology, it was God appearing, Jesus appearing. I don't happen to hold that belief. I believe that he was a man. Here's what it says. He says, well, he didn't have a father. He didn't have a mother, mother without genealogy. Well, you could maybe make that argument. You could also look at the point that the genealogy and the reference here is the fact that it didn't matter. He did not get that position based off of what family he was born into. He got that position because he was chosen by God. So we see the similarities here. First, we see Melchizedek was a king and priest. That's crucial. The second part here is that in in his priesthood, he issues a blessing, okay? The Aaronic priesthood did that as well, but here we see something interesting. The third part is that he received the tithes. The fourth part is that he was an independent high priest. His genealogy had nothing to do with it. Another thing is that it is timeless. When did his priesthood begin? Whenever God chose. When does it end? Whenever God chose. The fact here is that he was all-inclusive. Was he a minister to the Jews? Was he a high priest for the Jews? No, the Jews didn't exist. The only Hebrew was Abraham and his offspring. But he was the king of Salem. He was the high priest and ministered to all. The Levitical priesthood only ministered to the people of Israel. But the Melchizedekian priesthood ministers for all people. So now that we see the origin of Melchizedek, well, now we're going to see the superiority Of this order. Verse 4, Hebrews 7, verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Now you see why this is such a big deal, because the writer of Hebrews is making a big deal out of it. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though, ev- though they have, to, uh, have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So that entire lineage through Abraham paid tithes to a higher priesthood because the greater blesses the lesser. You guys see that? This gets a little convoluted. It's making the difference that men receive tithes, but there, God receives the tithes. So what we see here is we see the writer of Hebrews making a distinction between the old priesthood and the new priesthood. Because what we know about this is that with the new covenant, the old has gone away. We've seen that verse several times. Thus, the Mosaic covenant is no longer in force, if you will. But this new covenant is something new and distinct. But here's the thing. In order to have a new priesthood, what happened to the old? Does God just get to willy-nilly, just do whatever He wants? Well, you might say yes, but we know that God does not work in mysterious ways. Please lose that term from your vernacular. He works in predictable patterns. And whatever laws God has established, God will follow. So there's a pattern that will begin to develop that we see the old priesthood pass to the new. And I want to show you this in Scripture. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to watch what happens with Jesus. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet of Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John himself with clothes and camel's hair, with leather belt around his waist, his food with locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So what's happening? You got people that are now becoming disciples of John. And so when they become a disciple of any teacher, they would, become, they would be baptized. It was sort of an associating yourself with that teaching. It happened all the time. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers... Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, I'm going to stop for a minute because I want you to catch what's going on. First of all, you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees are the literalists. They're the ones that teach the scriptures, should understand the scriptures. They are uh, currently in power of the Sanhedrin. Later, the Sadducees take power. But at this point, the high priest himself is a Sadducee. The Sadducees do not believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in healing. They don't believe in angels. So they got to deal with all of that. So you've got these two people coming in here. And what does he say to them? You brood of vipers, who warns you? You should know, but you are not living a life worthy of repentance. And then he makes a weird statement. He says, God is ra- able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And this is what's bizarre. Because what stones is he referencing? Is he pointing at abstract rocks? No, he's not. Where is he? Where did he do his baptizing? The Jordan River. What significant event took place in the Jordan River? It was Je- uh, Jacob. No. Uh, that guy, Joshua. One of them. I get there. When they passed through the river, God opened the water. The Ark of the Covenant takes place on dry ground, and they created two memorials, one of stone on the shore and one of stone in the river. Twelve stones representing what? The twelve tribes of Israel. This was the promise given to Abraham. They're not holding up their end of the deal. God can make the memorial of the promise that God gave worship him. That's free. No extra for that. Verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Who's he talking about? talking about Jesus. I baptize you with water, but who baptizes with the Holy Spirit? Jesus does. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And who's he calling the chaff? Them. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting uh, upon him. And suddenly a voice from heaven came saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, There's a lot that's happening right here. Here's what's weird to me. First of all, we see the result of the baptism. What happens? The Holy Spirit comes on him like a dove. Please, all those pictures of a dove coming down, that is not right. Even some that have put a dove on fire coming down, that's just weird. Stop it. Don't share them when you see them on Facebook. That's not right. All right? The dove was not burning. Like a dove landing upon him. But here's where it gets weird. Jesus comes to John to be baptized. John doesn't want to do it. Why? Because he knows he's Messiah. What do you mean you're coming to me? No, no, no. I need to be baptized by you. And what does Jesus say? Permit it to be. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why? Why does Jesus, the incarnate word of God, the spotless lamb, need baptism for any reason whatsoever? And how does it fulfill righteousness? Well, to understand this, we've got to dig a little bit deeper. So the first thing we've got to understand is who the high priest was during this time. In Luke chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governed of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Idorea, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, when Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So during this priesthood, it says Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. Now, this is where it gets a little convoluted. Now, number one, why does Luke write all of this stuff? Tiberius Caesar, Pilate, all this stuff. He's giving you a marker in time of which you can look of when this took place. So, Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests at this time. Annas would be identified as Ananias in secular history. You can trace this out, but he was the high priest around 7 AD. Uh, but the Romans did not like him because they couldn't push him around. So the Romans went and began to pick other people to be the high priest over the Jews. Now, according to Scripture, what authority do the Romans have to make a high priest? Absolutely zero. So what Annas does is he convinced the Romans to choose his sons to be high priest. And up all the way to 63 AD, this takes place. So Annas was up until 15 AD, he was the high priest. Then Caiaphas takes over about year 18 to 36 and then his ultimately Ananias in 47 to 58. I mean, all of this is going on. But the title of high priest seems to be permanent. Kind of like when you're president, you're always president. They reference him as high priest and many times will go back and talk to him before they talk to Caiaphas or anybody else. These are the high priests and this is why they are here. Now, let's look at Luke chapter 1. Just keep that nugget in the back of your mind. Luke chapter 1. Verse 1, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So what's going on? Why is Luke writing this? He's writing to this guy named Theophilus. He's take, he says, many have taken in hand to set in order of a narrative of all the things that have been fulfilled among us. So just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, they delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, that I, since I understand all of this, to write to you an orderly account in which things transpired, that you might know the certainty of everything that you have been told. So he's putting it in an orderly account, which implies what? Some have written it, not necessarily In an orderly way. You look at Matthew. Matthew is very thematic, not necessarily chronological. So, let's look at verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias... Of the division of Abijah, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance, the Lord blameless, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord, and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay, what is going on here? There were so many priests... That, they, that David sets them up in divisions, 24 divisions. They would have a two-week increment of which they would serve. And because there were so many of them, they would cast lots. And if you were lucky enough, you actually got something to do. Which means if you didn't, you waited until the next time that your order came up again, they'd cast lots and you would hope you get to do something. Otherwise, you're on the unemployment line. This is what's going on. So we see that God comes to Zacharias, we see Elizabeth, and it talks about their division. Why does that matter? Well, it's giving us a lineage, and this is why it matters. Let's go look at this in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 1. That is in the Old Testament for those of you watching at home. 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 1, it says, Now these are the divisions of the son of Aaron. So who is Aaron? The high priest. So now he's dividing the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, four. And Nadab and Abihu, I'll say it that way, died before their father and had no children. So why did they die? They brought bad fire. They they did something they weren't supposed to do. Then David with Zadok, the sons of Eleazar and Ahimelech, the sons of Ithamar, divided them according to the schedule of their service. There were more leaders found in the sons of Eleazar than of the sons of Ithamar. And thus they were divided among the sons of Eleazar with 16 heads of their father's houses and eight heads of their father's houses among the sons of Ithamar. So you've got 16 of one grandpa and you've got eight of another. Thus they were divided by lot, one group as another, for there were officials of the sanctuary, of the officials of the house of God, from the sons of Eleazar and from the sons of Ithamar. And the scribe of Shemaiah, the son of Nathaniel, uh, one of the Levites, wrote them down before the kings, the leaders, Zadok the priest, Ahimelech the son of Abiathar, and the heads of the father's house of the priests and the Levites, one father's house taken from Eleazar and the one from, uh, for Ithamar. Did you realize now why we skip over a lot of these when we're reading? This is why. You're like, what on earth are you talking about, and why do I care? Verse 7, now the first lot fell to Jehoreb, the second to Jedidiah, the third to Harim, the fourth to Seoram, the fifth to Malkijah, sure, the sixth to uh, Majamin, the seventh to Hakos, the eighth to Abijah. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? The ninth to Jeshua, the tenth to Shechaniah, the eleventh to Elishib, the twelfth to Jacob, the thirteenth to Hupa, the fourteenth to Je- phew, sure the 15th to Bilga, the 16th to Imnar, and the 17th to Hazar, and the 18th to Hapazez, the 19th to Pethiah, uh, the 20th to Jehe- Jehezekel, the 21st to Jacob, the 22nd to Gamul, the 23rd to Delia, the 24th to Messiah. This was the schedule of their service for coming into the house of the Lord according to their ordinance by the hand of Aaron, their father, as the Lord God Israel had commanded them. Now here's the thing. What did we see? We see Abijah mentioned. Now, let's look at Luke chapter 1 again, and let's see what's going on in verse 5. I don't know if I put that back up there, but if you'll go back to it. There was in the days of Herod, king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. He was of the division of whom? Abijah. Thus, that means what? He's a son of Aaron. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So, they were both from the line of Aaron. They give birth supernaturally to a son named John, who was high priest, Caiaphas. How was he chosen? Not by God, chosen by man. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5 again. It says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Where am I going with this? Some of you guys have picked up on this. Ananias, whatever his name was, and Caiaphas were not the high priest chosen by God. They were chosen by Rome. The high priest was always chosen by God, had to come from the order of Aaron. What if John was God's chosen man as high priest that year? And if that's true, and this is speculative, if that's true, then why was it so necessary that Jesus made a point that, let it fulfill all righteousness, I must be baptized by you. Remember what I told you. When one high priest transitioned to another, he would baptize him. It would pass the baton. What legal claim did Jesus have to the highest priesthood? None, according to the line of Aaron. But John did. And what if that is what passed this baton on to the great high priest of the order of Melchizedek? If that's true, If that's true, that shines a whole new light on this new covenant. Because it says we get a better covenant based on better promises. Jesus does not qualify to be high priest according to what God has said to the order of Aaron. God does not just haphazardly change the rules. But what if he made a way way, way back at the beginning? Isn't that powerful? So we need to learn about this covenant and what it means and what God has done for us. We take this for granted, folks. You need to read 1 Chronicles. Read all them names. Teach me how to pronounce them. (laughs) Guys, we're just getting started. It's so powerful when you see Scripture in this light for the first time. So let's be thankful for the Word that this thing has been preserved for us. We can study this. We don't have to just read it. We can study this and learn and grow. So let's pray, and we're going to get out of here. Father,